Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. We've got an hour of science for you now, and on the line with me are some of the amazing members of my team. Dr. Ailey, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Uh, we've got Dr. Stacy. Good morning, Stacy. Hi, Dr. Shane. Nice to see you. And Dr. Anu, down, miles down in Geelong somewhere, I think. Uh, morning. Almost, Doctor. Thank you, Doctor Shane. Almost, Doctor. Hey, who cares? We just chuck it's him out. It's always a bit of an e- ego boost when we come here, and he, he promotes <laughs> us. <laughs> well, think think of half the other uh, co-hosts we have who are actually professors, and I call them Doctor. It kind of just balances out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they get demoted, you get promoted. A big uh, shout out to um, the team before we start our new segment, folks from Western Health. Um, if you follow their Twitter feed, it's worth doing because they have tweeted this morning that you can walk in without a booking and get the AstraZeneca vaccine so um, down at the showground so, or at the Sunshine Hospital site. So if you're uh, so inclined and you're bored, it's freezing cold, there's nothing to do in Melbourne anyway, we're all shut down. Uh, that is one reason you can actually leave your home is to go and get uh, vaccinated. So, yeah, check out the Western Health website. They, Well, it's walking apparently for uh, AstraZeneca. Check their Twitter feed. Anyway, let's get into some news. Uh, Dr. Ailey, do you want to start us off? Sure. Well, I'm going to start us off uh, with some some Arctic geology news this week. So, um, yeah, we're going to be talking undersea landslides. And you think, ah, yeah, okay, you can get landslides on the earth. We've actually saw a pretty devastating one, a mudslide in in Japan the other week. Um, Took out a a bit of a town, which was pretty horrific. But you can get them under the water as well, right? Mm. Now you think, oh, yeah, okay, that's great. You just get a mass movement of land under the water. What's, What's the big deal? Well... The big deal is, I mean, obviously it disturbs, you know, the, the natural ecosystems around the area. Uh, undersea cables, though, which are pretty important pieces of infrastructure, can get buried. It's not good. But the big thing with undersea landslides is actually localised tsunamis. Right. Now, it sounds strange, but a big undersea landslide can actually cause a really significant tsunami. And they think one of these happened in Indonesia a couple of years ago. Um, a lot of people were killed. The biggest tsunami on record was caused by an underwater landslide. And this happened in uh, Latuya Bay uh, on the coast of Alaska back in 1958, where trees were pushed down from the waters from the tsunami at 524 metres elevation. Wow. That's how big this tsunami was, according to this undersea, uh, sorry, caused by this undersea landslide. But what this, uh, this recent paper that's come out in Nature Geoscience has shown is basically another mechanism by which these landslides form. Often they're just caused by localised earthquakes. You get a big slip of the land, falls down, causes the tsunami. But this was a, a weird one. There was a bunch of um, researchers from a university in Nova Scotia who were cruising around in one of their research cruises up near Baffin Island, up in Canada in the Arctic, um, having a great time measuring what we call the bathymetry, which is basically the underwater sea topography. It's um, really difficult to do and very intensive to do, but really important to do. Anyway, they went one summer, came back the next summer and discovered that something had changed in the underwater sea bathymetry. Quite big. they think, oh, there's a landslide here. This has happened. But the interesting thing was that there was no earthquake, which is what usually caused them. So they're like, well, what's, what's going on here? Why do we have this undersea landslide? Looked back at all their data from the year before and someone said, hang on a second, there was an iceberg here. Hmm. And so they went back, they'd taken all these pretty photos of the icebergs, they went and had a closer look and sure enough what they found was at the top of the landslide an indentation, basically where this iceberg had run aground and uh, tipped over and they think that it was the mass of the iceberg that caused the undersea landslide and nobody has really known that this could happen before. Um, so, yeah, so this is them finding this new mechanism uh, for undersea landslides. And one of the reasons that they talk about that it's really important is, of course, it comes back to climate change, right? Climate change in the Arctic. Um, the Arctic is one of these places that's feeling climate change the most. It's melting a lot of glaciers. We get a lot of carving of icebergs off the front of glaciers. So we're kind of getting this increased discharge of icebergs. So um, they talk about this as, uh, you know, potentially being another hazard that we just need to keep an eye on. 
um, these undersea landslides, you know, probably rare, but uh, that they can, in fact, be triggered by large icebergs, which is yeah. kind of cool and a bit of one of those accidental findings that you get in science sometimes. Yeah, I think it's fascinating this because so many of these are probably occurring at any given time under the ocean that we just don't know about. So yeah. being able to track them and locate them and uh, I suppose measure the damage that they do in the undersea ecosystem as well because you, you turn mm. enough stuff up, it would completely change the local environments and, and often where those environments are most complex is near the shoreline. So, yep. you know, you'd see a lot of, lot of stuff there. Mm. Thank yeah. you, uh, Dr. Ailey Anu. What have you got for us? Thanks, Shane. So this month has been huge. You've probably seen headlines everywhere about uh, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos basically trialling out their space tourism offerings and um, blasting off and taking off into space. Um Often uh, mostly for suborbital space travel, which is essentially where you go up, defined as, you know, going up, staying up in microgravity for a few minutes and then coming back down. So this is basically what they're offering to civilian crews in the future. A ticket around would possibly cost you around about 100K they're hoping to get to in the next 10 years. Um, Essentially, you would have seen there's two different offerings here in the technology itself as well, with Richard Branson, um, who utilizes a air launching space vehicle, which is essentially an aircraft carrier, which carries another spaceship, mm -hmm. takes it up to a certain level, um, above sea level, and then has a second um, spaceship take off from that point. He did get up to um, what NASA defines as the boundary of space, which is around 80 kilometers. However, there has been quite a bit of debate as to whether that should really be classified as going into space. And you would have probably seen the memes all around the internet. Um, whereas Jeff Bezos has the uh, New Shepard, which is a traditional looking rocket thing, um, which did take off uh, using fuel, which is actually quite an innovative aspect of this um, uh, space vehicle, if you will. Um, which burns liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, which means that the chemical resultant is actually just steam water. Hmm. It's it's classified as one of the most cleanest um, rockets around currently. However, like the, I suppose you know um, we've got SpaceX as well, um, who are well their vision is more targeted towards going to Mars, and they've been utilizing these reusable rockets for quite some time now as well. Um, if you were looking to uh, get get in on some of this action. Um, Richard Branson's vision is actually to allow equitable access to space. So you can actually enter a lottery on a website called Omaze, um, in which you can essentially enter for free and be in the lottery to, you know, go to space yourself and experience one of these suborbital flights. Hmm. Yeah, I like the, the, the idea of a lottery, <laughs> equitable access for the, the super rich are doing this. So it's kind of a, a tad laughable. But, you know, if they give out two tickets for free, I guess you give them some points for that. Dr. Ailey. Oh, I know. Did I see? Um, did I see that the Federal um, Aviation Administration in the US, after all this, has just actually changed the definition yep. of an astronaut too, in response, so that not everybody not. can go up and call themselves <laughs> yeah. an astronaut. That's right? right. I did see that. Yeah, I think Jeff Bezos though gets the funny. award for the most penis-looking rocket ever constructed. I mean, you've got to give him credit for that because it is it is seriously phallic-looking, and um, it is very phallic-looking. Yeah. <laughs> At least with uh, Richard Branson, it does look like a plane on a plane. It's a little bit more uh, plane-like looking. Um, but, yeah, I think I saw that Jeff Bezos one and in an inappropriate meme and thought, hmm, yeah, can't argue with that. Very aerodynamic, though, apparently. It is. Yeah. Thank you very much, Anu. Uh, interesting stuff. It's, it's, all, uh, it's all happening in the space area. I suppose the, the, the real interest uh, for me is around some of the reusable stuff, which is really fascinating and, and looking at that. And I noticed that NASA announced their gateway project of the moon orbiting station, um, which is coming up as well, which will you know, allow greater access to the moon, which will be really, really cool. Also, early next year, I do believe there is another um, space tourism flight going up to have a private stay aboard the ISS. They call the Axiom mm. One. So right. we've got about four crew, I believe, um, who will be having a private stay aboard the ISS. So that'll be interesting to keep an eye out for. I could, I could show those those ISS staff that are already there thinking, what the hell, why are we, why are we having to deal with these tourists? We're trying to do scientific right. experiments up here. Yeah. It Thanks. is $55 million a ticket as well. Oh, yeah. See, there you go. Uh, access for all. Access for all. The, access the super for all. Yeah. Access for all. Uh, Stacey, what have you got for us? Oh, well, I'm back to Earth, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> 
So another COVID story. I, I know, Dr. Shane, you've been um, speaking to some pretty amazing guests um, lately around the latest evidence with COVID-19. Um, I was listening to the podcast on demand um, from Einstein and Gogo when you spoke with Margie Danchen recently. Yep. And she's, um, yeah, she's great. She's one of Australia's greatest science communicators. And she talked about barriers to access to vaccines and issues around hesitancy and communication. Well, since you had that conversation with Margie, um, there's also more evidence coming to light about the effectiveness of vaccines against the new Delta strain. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk um, today about this new study that was published this week in New England um, Journal of Medicine um, using real-world data from the UK. So um, by real-world, I'm talking about not controlled clinical trials, but intelligence arising from what's happening right now among people like you and me over in the UK. So the reason that the study is so important is that the last couple of months there has been some concern that the currently available coronavirus vaccines weren't as effective against Delta. And this study has refuted some of those claims. So as you know, Delta has become the dominant strain across, across the globe. So it counts for over 80% of the cases that we're seeing in the US at the moment. So huge research that's happening over there. Um, it accounts for nearly all of the cases in the UK. And we're also seeing this strain here in Australia with um, the current epidemic uh, in New South Wales. So Delta is more transmissible than that wild-type strain we saw circulating last year, which is um, now termed the alpha variant. And it very cleverly carries this mutation, encoding one of its spike proteins, and it's one of those mutations that causes Delta to replicate more effectively or efficiently inside the cell. So it essentially turns into like a, a photocopier on overdrive and it starts spitting out more and more copies of itself. And it's this increased replication that leads to what we term uh, um, as high viral load. So people have got lots and lots and lots of virus in their nose and their throats and, they, and their lungs. And so that's what's causing this Delta variant to be so transmissible. So in the face of this new variant, it's particularly important for us to make sure that all the tools that we have to combat this virus are going to work. And one of the best tools that we have at the moment is the coronavirus vaccine. So this study looked at the vaccination status of confirmed symptomatic cases with a Delta strain and they compared that to the vaccination status of people who were symptomatic but who had tested negative. So these are a kind of like test negative control group. And then they repeated the analysis for those who had the alpha strain, so that last year's wild type strain, um, and then they were able to look at that by vaccine type to calculate vaccine effectiveness estimates for each. So they had really good numbers in their study. So 19,000 confirmed cases of either strained. They matched that to three people each who had tested negative, so good numbers. And what the study was able to show is that the vaccine effectiveness of two doses of any of these vaccines is just really high, again, against mm. both strains, so both Delta and Alpha. So um, regardless of the vaccine type, if you have two doses on board, um, it's going to be effective around 88% effective against Alpha and around 80% effective against Delta. So really high numbers, and that's what we're wanting to see. I mean, having a, a vaccine so... Um, highly efficacious, efficacious in, in um, this new condition is, is really um, fabulous, fabulous science. They did split it out by vaccine type. So they um, saw some moderate differences between strains and between vaccine types. So with AstraZeneca, if you have two doses on board, um, you have about 75% um, re reduced risk of getting the alpha strain and about 67 reduced risk of getting the delta strain. So still pretty good um, mm. good vaccine effectiveness estimates there. Pfizer was a little higher, so delta against delta it was 88%. Um, so these are really, um, really compelling numbers. And what it shows us is that the vaccines that we have available um, are still going to do what they're designed to do, and that's preventing disease, so symptomatic disease, people getting sick and having to go to hospital. Um, yep. So I guess the, the main message is, you know, you really need to get that second dose on board before you have that maximal protection. So like you said earlier, Dr Shane, one of the reasons that we're um, able to, to leave the house during lockdown is to go get a vaccine. So particularly if you've had your first dose um, of AstraZeneca or Pfizer, um, I'd recommend people go out and get that second dose to ensure that maximal protection. Yeah, and you just mentioned those numbers in terms of getting the virus. That's not even prevention of hospitalisation, which is even higher on both counts, which is the part that we're really scared shitless about, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. So these are on getting symptomatic disease. Yeah. So you can um, get infected, but then you've got it, then you've either got to get infected and become symptomatic. So have 
symptoms and, and, yeah. and being ill. And absolutely, um, the, the studies coming out looking at the effectiveness of these vaccines against, against hospitalisation, ICU care or death are even higher than those numbers. Yeah. And um, that's, that's what you want to prevent. You want to pre prevent the morbid impacts on society. We don't want people going into hospital. Um, so, yeah, these, these are just really compelling reasons for people to, to go out and do the right thing, protect themselves, but also to protect um, uh, the community at large. Yep. Thanks so much, Stacey. Once again, we you know, tell people that vaccines work. And as I often say, there's a reason why I've got a smallpox scar on my arm and my eight-year-old son doesn't. And that's exactly. Because he doesn't need it anymore um, because vaccines do work. Thanks so much, Stacey Anu. Ailey, good to talk to all of you uh, folks. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back with our first guest who is a researcher from the Royal Children's Hospital. Back in just a few moments. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. On the line with us now is Joshua Ozawicki from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Josh, good morning. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. Good morning, scientists. It's um, and, and and a lot of other people probably listening as well that aren't scientists. Um, now you're working in an interesting area that we, I, I suppose, most of the time we don't even want to talk about this, but you know, the issue around streptococcus and and how that affects us, and you know how I guess it's it's everywhere at the moment, isn't it? It's quite a big problem. How big is the problem of sort of strep A, strep B, etc.? Like where do we see it, and how many people get infected? Sure. So, so the, the streptococcus that I'm interested in is this thing we call strep A. Uh, uh, scientists call it streptococcus pyogenes or group A streptococcus. And, and that kind of group A, group B thing is something that uh, someone called Rebecca Lansfield uh, discovered in kind of the first half of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, one of these uh, one of these kind of spectacular examples of a, you know, a pioneering female scientist uh, in, um, you know, in microbiology. Um, and, uh and so group A strep is this, is this incredible organism that was the cause of scarlet fever pandemics, uh, you know, for centuries and, you know, really well described, well, certainly a long time before anyone knew what a streptococcus was and, you know, would roll around the world ca causing, uh, you know, causing pandemics. And, uh, you know, every, people may have an image of those scarlet fever notices where families, households were quarantined because someone in the house had scarlet fever. And, uh, and so you you had this you know this thing that you know is going on for hundred years for thousands of years and in the early twentieth century we have uh, you know kind of lots of efforts at vaccines and other things uh, then penicillin arrives and uh, and a whole bunch of countries uh, you know develop in general in all sorts of kind of hygiene ways and other things and these kind of pandemics stop yep. and so you end up in you end up with this pa a different pattern of disease where kind of sporadic terrible disease so things like toxic shock syndrome or invasive group A streptococcal disease or uh, or um, necrotizing fasciitis, flesh-eating disease. And then on the other hand, these post-infectious complications that seem to happen in uh, places, uh, you know, with lots of crowding, malnutrition, poverty, um, and so things like rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease and, uh, and kidney damage, so what, what's called glomerulonephritis after streptococcal infection. And so the, the big problem with all of that is that is that after you know even kind of pretty innocuous mild strep throat with this bug mm -hmm. you know in some parts of the world uh, including uh, in uh, indigenous communities in australia um children and young people can be affected by this uh, kind of by heart damage and chronic heart damage that leaves you kind of with the kind of heart damage that otherwise you don't see unless you're 70 or 80 you right. see in kind of 10 year olds 20 year olds 30 year olds and um you know, and uh, and so you know, pretty much kind of hitting hitting people at the most productive part part of their lives. And so, when you look around the world, probably about seven hundred and fifty million people are affected are affected uh, in any year by Group A streptococcal diseases, strep A diseases, um, and probably you know, and we know that half a million or more are actually killed by these diseases, mostly because mm. of the chronic effects of rheumatic heart disease, but also you know also uh, you know, a couple of hundred thousand due to um, due to these kind of terrible uh, kind of invasive infections or sepsis, if you like. And, and Josh, what's the the sort of reservoir for this particular um, you know um, condition? I mean, you know, how, you know, if we remove it from our society at a given time, and it sounds like we we do that all the time in various places in the world. Obviously, it has a reservoir from which it it comes yet again. I mean, wh where are we collecting it? 
Yeah, so at any given time, at any given time, somewhere between probably 10 and 30% of children just have it sitting in the back of their throat asymptomatically. We call that carriage or colonization. This is a human-only pathogen. So, mm. you know, it, you can you can force an infection in an animal model if you like, but um, you know, but you're using much higher doses of strains that have kind of been specially fiddled with to, you know, to cause infection in a mouse or a monkey. Um, you know, you you don't really get to the heart of uh, of what's actually going on in these animal models so there's no animal reservoir there's no secret kind of you know uh, reservoir that we just haven't found this is a human bug it knows us better than we know it yeah interesting it's uh, are there many other bugs that uh, fall into that category that, that we have Yes, I mean, there are lots of bugs that are uh, if you're human restricted. So you can, you, they don't naturally infect, uh, infect uh, uh, species other than humans. Um, and so, and, you know, many of those are these bugs that have landed in, if you like, the too hard basket, for example, for immunization for a mm. really long time. So things like Staphylococcus aureus or golden staph is probably one of them. Uh, it's not that you can't, that you've never seen an infection in an animal. It's just that it's basically a human bug. Um, and the same thing. Same thing for uh, bugs like uh, Neisseria gonorrhea, the cause of gonorrhea, yeah. uh, even typhoid, even you know typhoid fever. Um, so there's actually, you know, most of the bugs, uh, and sorry, and uh, TB as well. You know, mm. TB is can infect. Uh, you know, we've seen infections in monkeys, we've seen infections in zoo elephants and the like, but it doesn't really naturally infect uh, and cause tuberculosis in uh, in non-humans mm. so with um with you know strep a obviously uh, when, as soon as i hear this story about it being difficult to essentially put in an animal you know where you have to make all sorts of modifications and you're no longer mimicking the the sort of that that scenario we would we would use normally in when we're testing particular therapies or we're testing you know vaccines or or, or whatever if you can't do those experiments in in a mouse model or any any other animal model i mean what what's the pathway towards addressing that what do you do Sure. So I think there are a few a few comments to make, and that is that the, that traditional pathway through animals, you know, faces many of the same many of the same problems as strep A. Ultimately, if it's if you're designing a product for a human, you know, a group of humans are going to have to take it for the first time. Yep. You know, and and we you know we apply all sorts of you know all sorts of thinking around the ethics of of early phase trials so the first trials that we give vaccines and other medications to humans um, and you know that's a really well established system and what i'm involved in and it you know it relates to all the stuff we've just been talking about is what what are called human challenge trials or controlled human infection models and these are these are uh, uh, studies where we deliberately infect humans with a bug uh, in order to learn more about the, how the bug in affects humans and how to stop the bug either with drugs or vaccines or diagno or new tests diagnostics so and you know there's there's nothing new about that kind of research yep. is the other thing to say so you mentioned smallpox before and yep. you know the reason that you've you know so you mentioned that the reason that your child doesn't have a smallpox scar is because the vaccine works and the reason that we know the vaccine works is because it's been given it was been it was given to millions of people effectively and the reason that was possible was because Edward Jenner gave it to his the guard, his gardener's son Jamie Phipps and subsequently, subsequently challenged him with smallpox, mm. proving that the vaccine worked. So, so what does a challenge trial look like? Is that um, is mm. that a, a I mean, you know, correct me if I'm just being really facetious here, but is, is that a yep. graduate student who is looking for some some money on the side and you pay them to to basically go and sit in the hotel and be be sick and be treated for a few weeks? I mean, what what does that actually look like on the ground when you do these? first trials in in humans yeah so so that's what they looked like in if you like in the 50s 60s 70s and okay. um, they very much looked like that they were done in dorms they were um and uh in through the 70s and 80s there was a thing called the common cold unit in uh in the uk where they did they uh there's some wonderful videos on youtube actually of the common cold unit and the, the videos they created essentially have uh, have uh women who are presented as housewives sitting around sipping tea after having after having one mil of fluid put up uh, each nostril and in the in that mill of fluid were uh, viruses like uh, uh, common cold coronaviruses or uh, rhinoviruses and uh, 
and uh, they would uh, document, uh, you know, what the clinical kind of course of their illness was, uh, watch them really closely in terms of looking at, you know, how much of this virus came out in their snot, uh, looked at mm. what the, their immune response was in their blood, and uh, you know, and when they recovered from their cold, they sent them home. Right. Uh, they might even put they might even put two people in a room and have one person who wasn't in, who wasn't challenged and see if the, if in fact it was transmissible. And so you know, they learned they learned a heap in that kind of setting. But what these studies look like now is more is typically something that looks a lot more like a hospital ward. And so depending on what organism you're using, so if it's a really highly transmissible organism, you're talking about private rooms with, you know, with lots of PPE, lots of special kind of ventilation and the like. Um, but something that looks like a hospital ward, uh, nursing care that looks like hospital nursing care, you know, uh, an adjacent uh, tertiary adult hospital. So if something goes wrong and everything is done in these hospitals from the point of view of who you who, who the volunteers are, strained how you do things to prevent something bad happening and in fact no one has been seriously harmed or killed in one of these trials um, we're talking about more than twenty-five thousand uh volunteers for more than 25 pathogens um and uh and you know and these are done with a say an intensive care unit and really close medical support nearby mm. on the uh, really remote chance that something goes wrong. So all the things that we do when we test something in humans for the first time, like a new drug, except in this case, what we're doing is testing a pathogen that we've actually we actually know a lot about because we've we've lived with it for hundreds of years. Yep. Well, look, Josh, we're we're pretty much out of time here. Um, but just uh, in the last ten seconds, how's it looking in terms of strep A? Are we are we getting closer to a, a a proper treatment or, or, or vaccine, do you think? Yes. So we have some really exciting developments in Australia. We have a vaccine initiative funded by the MRFF. We've got an international uh, co uh, consortium funded by the Wellcome Trust. Uh, we've got a brand new human challenge model for strep throat that I've been involved with uh, uh, with a team at MCRI and uh, others around the world uh, that we've established. It was safe. We gave people a strep throat. It was safe. And we're going to test vaccines in that model very soon. Excellent. Well, Josh, thanks so much for talking to us. Uh, it's, it's great to hear this alternative version of the way these things are done and and it's good to see we're not doing the sipping uh, tea housewife version from the 50s. Um, good luck with the ongoing work, and hopefully we'll see a, a real uh, change in the way we treat this particularly problematic illness in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks, Shane. Folks, that was uh, Josh Osawicki from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. We're going to take a break for some music, and when we come back, we'll be speaking with one of my favourite guests, actually, young May, who you may remember we interviewed when she was first five years old. She turned eight yesterday, so we're excited to be talking to her, and also with uh, Gracie Finko from Texas. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. On the line with me now are two of my favourite guests that we've spoken to a few times in the past. We have young May. Good morning, May. Good morning. It is great to talk to you again. And her mother, Louise, is on the line as well. Hi, Louise. How are you going? Hi, Shane. Very well, thank you. And we have Gracie, one of my team members, on from Texas. We thought that would be an extra special thing for May to have a chat to, uh, to Gracie as well. Hi, Gracie. Howdy, everybody. Now, we... Um, <laughs> howdy, that's the, the Texan coming out. Um, now, Louise, just give us a, a bit of an insight first. For those who don't remember hearing, May was first on this show when she was five years old. And how old are you now, May? Eight. Eight years old. When was your birthday? July 24. That was yesterday. Yes. Yeah. Happy birthday for yesterday, May. Did you, Did you know what the date is today for Gracie? Um, no. Gracie? It's still Saturday, so it's still your birthday over here. It's still your birthday in America, May. That's pretty cool. Louise, tell us a bit about um, what you've sort of been going through over the last few years, because both you and May have a very particular condition, which is very challenging. We do. We both have what's called common variable immune deficiency. Yep. And May has an extra. She also has cystic fibrosis. Mm, not good. Now, what, what does that mean in terms of your immune system and May's immune system? So it doesn't function normally, and we're missing quite a number of um, antibodies that most of the general public have, and it means that um, we have to replace those antibodies with weekly immunoglobulin treatment or replacement therapy. Um, May has an infusion once a week, um, and I at the moment are going in monthly to have mine. 
um, intravenously. So, May, what do you think about that? That must be pretty tough to have to get that infusion every single week, but I know you've been doing it for a few years. How, how do you feel about that? Good. Yeah? Keeps you healthy? Yes. You're a very brave young girl. Yep, she's given us a big smile, folks. May, what, what does it mean for you in terms of school and so forth? Do you, do you still, can you still go to school and, and run around and do everything normally? Not really. What, so what sort of things do you do? What do you um, like to do? Um, ride my bike. Ride your bike? That sounds pretty cool. And I know you've been uh, you've been wearing masks for a long time. What do you think about this need that everyone has to wear a mask now? Does that make you feel a little bit better? Not really, because um, I don't really feel any different when I have a mask on. You're so used to it, huh? Yeah. Do you have a few favourite masks, or do you just wear the normal boring blue surgical masks? I've got um, Mickey Mouse ones, all these puppy dog ones. All these rabbit ones. That's very cool. Louise, in terms of, um, you know, COVID and so forth, what does that mean for for you and and for May? Are you able to be immunised at any point or is that sort of off the table for the two of you? Um, So May, obviously being a child, she can't be vaccinated as yet, but I can be. um, But obviously there's um, no guarantee that it will be effective, Mm. um, I guess, yeah, so I will definitely have it in the hope that I'll produce some kind of, um, you know, have, it'll provide some sort of protection. But, yeah, it's, it's likely to be ineffective. And and how do you, I mean, how, you, you must have very particular views of how things are going down at the moment in, in the world with regards to a scenario where we all have access, the rest of us have access to vaccines and many of us, you know, not me, but a lot of people are saying, no, I don't want that. I mean, this this must drive you insane seeing this given what you're having to address with May. It does. It really does. To have the, if we were privileged, privileged enough to be able to get the vaccination and for it to be effective, it'd be such a, an amazing situation to be in. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for us. Um, and to, if, if, you know, if May was to be able to be vaccinated as well, would just, you know, reassure us. It's really, it's been a huge concern. Mm. Are there any new treatments coming out for, for the condition that are sort of, you know, on, on the horizon or is it still going to be transfusions for, or, you know, infusions for, for quite some time? Yeah, so not that I'm aware of. So um, we believe this stage that it's a lifelong thing for me um, in terms of SCVID. Obviously, with cystic fibrosis, there is some um, amazing medications that are around at the moment but cost a lot of money that the government are yet to fund. So that's something that we're really crossing our fingers Four. Um, I know they're available in America. It's called mm. Trikafta, so that's something that would really, um, you know, be really helpful for me in terms of SCF. But for CVID, it is a lifelong treatment plan in terms of. Um, but I know there are some amazing people doing amazing work out there. Um, but yeah, yeah. And in terms of um, you know, sort of the message that you want to send out to to people about the the vaccines at the moment. I mean, what what would you suggest? I mean, there seems to be this resistance. I know people are concerned about some of the the very low incident side effects that have been, you know, really pushed heavily in the newspapers. But, I mean, what would be your message to people in terms of, you know, the protections you need for for yourself and your daughter and and how they can help with that? Yeah, I guess, um, obviously, the media has created a lot of fear in people, um, and I guess, you know, getting immunised is not just for yourself, it's for the greater good. And just to have that luxury to be able to be vaccinated and to have that choice to um, say, you know, and, um, yeah, it's, it's it's madness to me. But I guess we're seeing it from a very different perspective. Yeah. Um, and I think we've been in a very privileged position in Australia to not be impacted by COVID as a lot of the rest of the world has been. So I think... Um, yeah, if you can get vaccinated, get vaccinated. Get vaccinated. Is my, my thoughts. Yep. Now, May, would you uh, would you like everyone to be wearing masks? I'm not sure if she's wandered off there. Yes. Yeah. Do you want? So, tell people what they have to do. What do they have to do? Wear masks. Oh no. Oh, the video's gone off there. <laughs> okay. We're all good. What would you, you like people to, to do? Wear ma- you need to wear masks because um. To stop spreading the virus. 
Yeah, it's pretty good when you hear an eight-year-old kid telling you all to do it. So I think for everyone out there, if you're wondering about why, you might actually have to protect those around you as well as you're just worrying about yourselves. Little kids like May uh, rely on all of us to do that. Gracie, you must be seeing a few things over there in Texas that are similar. I know the vaccination rates aren't high. Um, there's a, a lot of people for a variety of reasons who can't be vaccinated that need the support of the rest of us, yeah? Yes, definitely. I honestly would not be surprised if we went into another lockdown soon with the Delta variant and everything going on still with yeah. the people, the number of people that are still choosing not to get vaccinated. Yeah. Well, May, before we go, is there is there anyone that you wanted to say hello to that you think might be listening to you today? I know this is your third or fourth time on radio. You're getting pretty good at it. Is there anyone you want to say hello to before you go? I'm my cousin, Mimi. Oh, very nice. My name's Amelia, but yeah. Excellent. Well, May, I very much look forward to talking to you again a year from now. Are you are you happy to be interviewed every year about this because it's such an important topic? Yeah. Yeah? Sound good? I remember the first time you came in the studio, you were five years old. You've grown up a lot. It's great to see you growing into such a fine young human, and we very much uh, look forward to seeing you again next year. Louise, thanks so much for organizing this. Good Thank luck. You. And look, we'll keep pushing for people to to do the right thing and be vaccinated and and help protect you and your family. And I I think, um, I don't know how you do it. You must be beside yourself when you see some of the news of people acting so badly. But um, good luck. And I hope things continue to be, um, you know, positive for both you and me. Thank you so much for having us on, Shane. You're very welcome. For your support. No problem. Bye, May. Great talking to you. Bye. Bye. Bye, May. Bye. Bye, and happy birthday again for yesterday. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, folks, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements, and we'll be back soon. Gracie's going to talk all about tattoos. It's going to be kind of cool. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. You are listening to Triple R. And speaking of community service announcements, I noticed that Western Health today is offering a walk-in service for anyone who wants to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, which uh, is a far cry from how things have been of late. I've heard of all sorts of stories of people rocking up to their GPs and being told no. Um, so I think... Uh, if you want to get vaccinated today, sounds like the great staff down at the showgrounds and the Sunshine Hospital are happy to take walk-ins. And given I've announced this a couple of times so far in this hour, I hope they haven't been overrun by, by too many people, but uh, worth checking out. On the line with us still is Gracie from Texas, one of our great team members. Gracie, how are you going? Great. How are you, Dr. Shane? I'm very good. And it's good to talk to you because this is uh, essentially part two of uh, the story you did a couple of weeks ago on on tattoos. Do you want to just give us a, a quick minute on where we got to after your, your first half of, um, of this bit of science? Yes, absolutely. So kind of as a summary to last time, um, we talked about how capillary action, um, kind of like the same thing that goes on um, whenever you put a straw in a drink, um, basically is pulling the ink into your skin hmm. when you're getting a tattoo and specifically into the second layer of our skin. So through the epidermis, which is the outer layer into the dermis, which is the second layer. Um, and the ink particles get gobbled up by cells called macrophages, which are known for kind of gobbling up foreign substances in your body and getting rid of them. And we also talked about a study where researchers tattooed mice tails and found out different macrophages come and gobble up the ink particles, and then they die and leave some of the particles behind. And then new macrophages come in and eat the particles again of ink. So it's kind of like this never-ending cycle of macrophages that come and eat the ink particles um, kind of throughout your life. And that was a study that was done in just in 2018, so pretty recently. Mm. Um, and actually, since I did that segment two weeks ago, I found out that tattooing tails of mice is actually a pretty common way of identifying them in research studies. Oh, wow. So I actually had no idea. Um, I guess I thought people used like physical tags, maybe on like their ears or something. I never would have thought that tattooing tails of mice would be so common. Um, hmm. Maybe they're barcode barcoding them or something. Yes. Yeah. Essentially. I mean, it, they do it kind of with stripes. From what right. I saw online. So, it, yeah, so it looks, it kind of does look like a barcode in a way. Yeah, which is interesting. I, I suppose like you always had the image of a, a little tag or something or even just, I don't know, a small spray painted number on the back or something simpler. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think I saw online that those are ways that that happens. 
Um, but they do also use tattoos as one method. Um, but anyways, in, in 2021, the same kind of research group, the same one that did that 2018 study, looked at how macrophages and a different cell called fibroblasts reacted to tattoos. Um, and fibroblasts are cells that help with wound healing in, that, in the dermis, so in that right. second skin layer where the ink goes. Um, and the researchers wanted to look at this because before their 2018 study that suggested there was kind of this endless cycle of macrophages, uh, the common thought was actually that fibroblasts were the ones holding the ink. Mm. And so they looked at both of the different types of cells. Um, and the researchers actually found that fibroblasts do hold the ink too, but just not as much as macrophages hold. Um, um, and I was really surprised that we just found this out. This was 2021. So this year yeah. we just found this out. I mean, we've been um, tattooing so people for a very long time, right? Yes. Yeah. Thousands, thousands, thousands of, of years. years. We just worked it yeah. out in 2021. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and there's really that just one research group that I found doing research on this. So if you're an immunologist or something that's listening to this episode, I mean, this field is pretty much wide open if you're interested in doing this. So um, I was really surprised by that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And and then also as we age, uh, tattoos, uh, I think it's kind of common knowledge, tattoos kind of tend to uh, change in the way that they look as we mm. age. Yep. Um, and a lot of that is due to our skin losing its elasticity. Um, and I didn't realize this is actually an official term. It's called elastosis, where our skin becomes weaker and doesn't hold its shape as well. So it can kind of look leathery or saggy. Um, and elastosis is basically degeneration of that dermal layer. So since that's where tattoo ink kind of lives in that dermal layer, um, this can basically cause the ink to kind of spread or fade. Um, and the color can also fade uh, partially due to those immune cells, those yeah. macrophages and fibroblasts kind of gobbling up those small fragments repeatedly over time, but also because of the sunlight, obviously. So if you're out in the sun a lot, your tattoo is going to tend to fade a lot faster. Just like um, our clothes, huh? UV, ex right, exactly. UV exposure literally just you know fades these things out. Yeah. Yes, Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and kind of moving on to tattoo removal, hmm. um, basically a laser uses pulses of light to basically blast the tattoo ink into smaller pieces that more macrophages and fibroblasts kind of can come and gobble up. Um, but it takes several sessions, um, like 10 to 15 sessions. So a lot of sessions. Um, and some tattoos only fade after that. They don't completely go away. Um, and Basically, how it works is different wavelengths of light from the laser are more effective at removing different colors of ink. So shorter wavelengths are going to be better at breaking up pigments that are more of like a red or a brown. Um, and then the longer wavelengths are going to be better at breaking up green and blue pigments. Right. Um, but black, black can actually be broken up by any wavelength because black absorbs all colors of light. Um, but then on the opposite side of the spectrum, uh, white tattoos are actually the hardest to remove or the hardest pigment to remove. Yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting to, to pause on that and just say, so if you, have, if you have blue pigment, the reason that it appears blue is because it predominantly reflects blue light back to our eyes yes. and it absorbs yes. the red colors. So if you want it to absorb the laser, you need to use red because that's the only one that absorbs. And yes, yeah, and vice versa. So it's, it's kind of, you could really dial that into, I'm, I'm wondering if I, I want to remove just part of my tattoo, just the, just the green part. Um, I could, I could use a specific colored laser just to get that bit out, presumably, couldn't I? Right. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah. So then I guess if you're not really sure about what kind of tattoo you want to get and you think you may want to get it removed later, don't get white. Yeah. Um, hopefully you're not somebody that's in that situation, <laughs> but if you are, if you find yourself in that situation. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, as you say, like black tattoos are obviously the easiest to remove because they're, um, they absorb all colors. Right. Exactly. Hmm. And, and so laser tattoo. Oh, sorry. No, go, no, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Yep. Uh, I was going to say laser tattoo removal actually started back in the 1960s with CO2 lasers, um, which could cause a lot of scarring and mm. just, basically thermal damage. Um, and then the next wave of technology kind of came in the 1990s with nanosecond lasers. Um, so basically the pulses of light, uh, you could do it quicker yep. um, to end up to actually use the laser. Um, and that kind of minimized some of the scarring and thermal damage, but it still could cause some scarring. So in 2016, there was actually a brand new laser tattoo removal technology. Uh, they were picosecond lasers. Um, so basically, the pulses of light are getting faster as we go up in technology, and it, it minimizes the risk of scarring even further. Um, and it also means that someone could go 
through shorter and fewer sessions hmm. for their tattoo removal. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, picosecal lasers where you, you have a very short burst of light, but it is fairly energy intensive. So you, you're sort of, you're getting that value of the, the quick burst without having to heat things up over, over the whole area, which presumably is how, right. you, yeah, how you get more effective removal of tattoos without, you know, heating things up. I mean, you mentioned the CO2 laser. The, I, I'm assuming that was a lot of um, UV light, which is, is not something that we would want to be, you know, whacking someone with over time. I, I remember using one of those lasers years ago, and I used it for, you know, pretty serious work where I was destroying materials. So you don't want to use that on yes. the human body. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it's kind of insane to me that these are actually approved for being used on humans mm. uh, whenever you look at that kind of technology and what it was doing to people, but it's only gotten better. Um, and also over the decades, lasers have had challenges with different skin colors, which it kind of goes back to what you were saying about the green and the blue pigments mm. um, or even any pigment. Um, so certain people of certain skin colors will have more of like a yellow tint to their skin or more of a red tint to their skin. Um, and the ink can actually appear different um, depending on what skin color a person is. Right. Um, and so that could actually be a tool maybe in the future for some tattoo artists to have a specific kind of color palette um, that they could choose from if they were tattooing somebody of a specific skin color. Yeah. And I mean, what, what else is there in terms of new technologies and so forth? Are there any other things with regards to tattoos coming out, Gracie? I mean, it seems to me as though... You know, I'm I'm waiting. I mean, there's some amazing tattoo artists out there, but I'm waiting for the day when I can upload a, an image and go in and some robot machine tattoos my my leg with you know some perfect sort of uh, Star Wars scene or something. Are we are we heading towards that? Do you think? Yeah, that's actually really interesting. Um, I didn't see anything in terms of uh, kind of more automated technology. Uh, kind of like what you're describing. Um, I was actually really surprised to find that tattoo artists don't really have like a central, um, I guess, society, you could call it, or organization or like governing body. Um, and so, and that was true in the US and also in Australia. Um, and so I think it would be really interesting to see kind of where that ends up going in the future um, in terms of if they would kind of organize to almost kind of protect their profession and in terms of protecting kind of their uh what they went to school for to be yep. a tattoo apprentice um to be able to do custom artwork or if that would somehow be applied in a different way in the future yeah depending on technology yeah and i think the other thing is uh, the ability to actually lay down circuit patterns and so forth under the skin at some stage has got to come up i mean surely we're going to move into that space where we're actually putting putting designs for our phones into our skin yeah Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So that'll be interesting to kind of see how that evolves in the future. Yeah. Well, look, very cool stuff there uh, in the tattoo front. Thanks so much, Gracie. Now, before we let you go, though, I just want to say, what's the situation like there at the moment in Texas with regards to the pandemic? How are things going? How's your work going? Are you able to go to work? What What's the scenario? Yeah. So, um, pretty much, I am able to go back to almost kind of my quote unquote quote, uh, normal way of life, right. you could say. Um, so most people are able to go to um, go to their universities, uh, go to their businesses, go out in public without masks on. Um, most uh, businesses or uh, maybe say like restaurants will say masks are optional now if you're fully vaccinated. Right. Um, but of course, there's nobody that can really enforce that. If you're walking in without a mask and you aren't, you haven't been vaccinated. There's, yep. I mean, nobody knows, right? So you're kind of just going up more off of good faith in people. Um, I'm still working partially remotely just because I found it to be an easier transition for me whenever COVID started. I actually really enjoyed working remotely and could do it um, a lot of the time as a PhD student, I'm writing a lot of things. Mm. Um, I'm doing a lot of research um, on my laptop. Um, and so that was easier for me. Um, but that's kind of the situation right now is, and like you said earlier, we have pretty low vaccination rates right now still. Um, yep. And there's been a lot of talk in the Delta var or about the Delta variant in the news recently. So I honestly wouldn't be surprised if we had another um another lockdown yeah it's certainly uh, in that uh situation where i think uh, do you feel as though you've sort of hit that vaccine hesitancy wall now in the u.s i mean is it is it still an element of people not being able to access vaccines or do you think you've hit that point where 
everyone who's going to already has? I actually saw a pop-up on my phone today that gives me news articles, and I didn't click on the link, so I actually don't know how reputable the source is. Um, But the headline was basically that everyone who, or most people, the majority of people um, who want a vaccine have had access Mm. to get it. Um, So I think we're kind of, like you said, at that point of hitting that wall. Um, But. Like I said, I don't know if that was a reputable news source. I just I just remember uh, seeing it pop up on my phone. But, yeah, yeah, um, it's interesting. And and you've been you've been vaccinated as as I recall. Yes, yep. yes, I have. Very yeah, good, very definitely. good. Well, Most um, people that I know have been. Yeah. Um. So it, it's just kind of insane to me how the the vaccination numbers are so low. Mm. Uh, yeah. But what are things like there in Australia? Oh, look, we have a real problem here with vaccinations as well. Unfortunately, uh, one of the two vaccines that we we have um, put a lot of time and energy into and, and produce locally, um, the AstraZeneca vaccine has had some very, very low-level side effects, you know, that have affected a few people quite severely, but the, the numbers of that are very, very small. But unfortunately, uh, through a number of our media agencies and so forth, people are just absolutely terrified of, of some of these problems. And so our vaccination levels are much lower than yours. And with the recent outbreak in Sydney, of course, and to some degree in other cities in Melbourne to a smaller Melbourne to a smaller extent in Adelaide and Queensland, um, we you know we're looking a bit um, a bit on edge at the moment. But uh, hopefully, you know, we can get those numbers up in time. And uh, until then, of course, we're all suffering from lockdowns, which is not fun, but um, but absolutely necessary. Gracie, we have to go, but um, great talking to you again. I think we're talking to you again pretty soon, actually. You're scheduled on in a week or so, I think. Yes, yep, Excellent. that's correct. Excellent. Well, you stay safe there in Texas, and we will chat to you again soon. And thanks so much for teaching us all about the science of tattoos. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Shane. Thanks, Gracie. Folks, this has been Einstein and Gogo. You've been uh, listening to an hour of science, and we're going to hand you over now to the team from Eat It, who uh, I know Cam's down there. I think he's in, I can see him in studio too. He is ready and fired up uh, to give you an hour of amazing, amazing radio on uh, food and eating and all things that we should be thinking about at the moment while we're in lockdown, which is one of the best things we can fill our time with. I think uh, I'm going to go and uh, take a rest. Uh, I think it's been a tough couple of days in Australia with regards to all the things going on. But if you get a chance and you haven't been vaccinated, get on down to one of the hubs here in Melbourne and get yourself covered. And until then, remember science is everywhere and we will chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.